The Axe of the Blood God. <laughs> Welcome to the Axe of the Blood God end of year special. We're going to be talking about all of our favorite RPGs of 2015 and the best RPGs that have come out and kind of take an overall look at the RPG landscape. It's been an interesting year for role-playing games. You could say that the consoles have definitely come into their own this year, while the handheld, the dedicated handhelds, eh, they're, they're doing all right. Um... I mean, we is it still getting games on the PSP? So that's a thing. We're going to have a bunch of people from US Gamer on the podcast. We're going to have Bob Mackey back on the show. We're going to have Nadia Oxford, who has been contributing to US Gamer. She's going to share some of her thoughts. But first, we're going to start out with our favorite, Mike Williams. Welcome back. Hello, hello, folks. I'm glad to be the favorite. I didn't know that was the case. You're everybody's favorite, Mike. I mean, you like go to any event where you are and like you're, you're just there. Like you just somehow end up everywhere. You seem to know everybody. It's you, you are the coolest, I should say. I am the coolest. Yes. Yay. This is me doing a victory lap, but not actually moving from my chair because I have headphones on. But Mike, I am going to ask you two questions and I'm going to ask these two questions to our other guests as well. My first question, what is your favorite RPG of 2015? Uh, that's pretty much going to be The Witcher 3, Cat. The Witcher 3? But that's not an RPG. I don't see any like turn-based elements in there. And like you're using a sword to hack and slash things. Explain yourself. But it's got choices and consequences and stats and armor and swords and magic. And monsters that it has enough RPGness for me. Uh, I mean, unless we're gonna go all the way back to RPG being like wizardry style CRPGs or, or old Final Fantasy style JRPGs. But yeah, no, as a as a story driven uh, RPG experience, uh, I enjoyed The Witcher. I enjoyed The Witcher Three a lot, even when uh, I mean, like playing combat uh, you know it's a little floating it's not not, not the, the most amazing combat but the rest of the game was so amazing that i was willing to overlook that all right what was amazing about the rest of the game cd project red i'd say probably had the best written quests of any rpg i played this year just straight up bar none you're out in the world you find these little pockets of civilization and you feel like there are actual people living there and you are actually engaging with the problems that they have trying to survive in this very harsh world and uh, I don't think any other uh, RPG. Now, no, uh, the probably the only other one I think could have uh, stepped up to it would have been Pillars of Eternity, which I didn't get a chance to play, 
or Shadowrun Hong Kong, which I also didn't get a chance to play. Um, but given all the other games that I played, uh, like Fallout 4, uh, uh, what else did I play for RPGs this year? Fallout 4. You played Tales of Zisteria. Oh, Tales of Zisteria, which, which, uh... Which is clearly a really memorable RPG in your mind. (laughs) Tales of Zisteria was good. Like I said in the review of Tales of Zisteria, that was more about the interaction between the characters they were very fun characters and i'm like oh i I like you guys i just you know i i want to see uh you guys interacting uh and the game is just sort of my medium for that although now they've announced uh tales of zisteria the x which is the anime adaptation so if you want to enjoy those characters at some point soon you'll probably just be able to do so on crunchyroll or you could just watch it a, a Let's Play, which is what all the kids are doing these days. Oh, yeah, that's true. Why even bother with the battle system? You can just watch all of the interactions with uh, smart alecky commentary anytime you want. But let's get back to Witcher 3. Like, What really sets it apart from the other open-world games? Because open-world RPGs, you know, they're kind of a dime a dozen these days. Yeah, like I said, it's, it's, that, it's, it's very much the time and craft that um, CD Projekt Red took in crafting each of the quests that you played. Uh, they're all not, well, I don't want to go into hyperbole. Uh, many of them are very memorable. And that's not just the quest that you're given from villagers, but that's also the hunts that you partake in. Because again, a witcher is a monster hunter. And uh, every time you go into a town, there's somebody asking for you to kill a wraith or 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 hob or something like that that is messing with the village in some way shape or form it's it's just it was a very enjoyable experience interacting with the quests uh and how they were put together and uh interacting with the people in the world which is i, I at least for me personally really what an rpg is about um, there are a couple uh, of games that created interesting worlds, like Fallout 4 created a, a the world itself, the sandbox that the game exists in. Uh, the design of it was interesting. But outside of a certain few characters, I didn't really engage with any of the other characters or the people in Fallout 4. Fallout 4 felt, to me, almost like Borderlands meets a larger, more simulated Borderlands. Yeah, pretty much. Sterile, in some ways. Yeah. And I mean, there there's some moments there where you can see you can see Bethesda shine through. Like, Nick Valentine was such a great character. Oh, great uh, character, great character, yeah. Yeah, and and occasionally, occasionally, uh, one or two of their actual quests, like you get, okay, you get a feel for, you got, there's someone at, at least there that still still gets it, but a, a lot of the quests are just, you know, go here, kill everything, do a thing, come back. Uh, so yeah, it, it felt like a, a more... I don't want to get off Borderlands, but yes, but that's I don't want to get too far off the beaten track. Oh, never mind. I'll defend Fallout Four later. 
You can say your piece. Say your <laughs> so, piece. So someone else, someone else uh, says uh, it is best if you treat Fallout Four uh, not as an RPG but as a simulation, and I agree with that. A simulation of what? Uh, of a world. Of a world. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Where you have a big gun. Yeah. Yeah. It's an action simulation of a world, and I agree. Taken to that uh, point. It, it does what it is supposed to do, and I think it does it well. The problem is, is I wanted more of an RPG. So that's more of a personal uh, disconnect with the game. My recollection of Witcher 3 was that it was also pretty combat-heavy. Um, it is. The main character, Geralt of Rivia, is basically fantasy Batman. Very roughly spoken. I mean, he has like his moments where he has flashbacks to uh, training uh, what's her face, and there's there's also his on and off, on again, off again girlfriend who's kind of like Catwoman, I guess. Um, and then, but most of the game is you take on a quest, and yeah, like you kind of, and you're figuring out what the monster is, and you're like picking up clues, which is kind of cool and very Batman like, and then. Ultimately, you figure out what the monster is and how to defeat it, and then you go and you have a big fight and you kill kill the monster. And yeah, like it's kind of cool in that it's telling a little bit of a story of like how that monster came around. But at the end of the day, it's still a lot of fighting. I agree. I'm not. I'm not going to disagree that uh, uh, it, it isn't a lot of fighting. Uh, the strength of killing monsters, I felt, was more in. Uh, and again, I said in my review that it was medieval Batman, uh, having the correct tools at hand to defeat X monster, uh, because a, a number of them were generally like you required a special oil or a special weapon or used this specific magic. But yeah, the game is pretty combat heavy. Um, I just think that the reasons they give you for the combat are better presented than, yeah, pretty much uh, any other game I played this year. What, what is your favorite moment or quest from Witcher Three? Uh, I forget what the exact name of the quest was, but it actually comes pretty early. Um, it's the the Bloody Baron uh, quest line where uh, there is an alcoholic warlord uh, controlling a specific area, and you basically have to find out what happened to his wife and daughter. And uh, it's a pretty amazing quest line, just dealing with the ins and outs in the family and you finding the truth out about what happened. And it takes... Uh, I'd say morally to some interesting places, depending on what you choose to do in the quest. Did you ever play the the DLC, and would you recommend it? Uh, I have not played Hearts of Stone yet, mostly because um, uh, I played Witcher 3. Uh, this is, is a review crying. Uh, I played Witcher 3 on PS4 on a debug system. And I own, I, I went out and bought Witcher 3 afterwards, um, but it was so big, it was so very big the first time around that I have yet to open it. So I don't have uh, 
a, a leveled character, although I did find out later that Hearts of Stone allows you to just jump in uh, with a like level 30 character or something like that. Yeah, but, but no. it's weird because I did that <laughs> and I was like, what, who, who am I, what am I doing? Like, where do I put all these points? Like, what is all this gear? Like, yeah, it's that thing where you like, if you jump back, it like, like you stop an RPG or something and then you come back to it like months later and it just doesn't work because you, you're missing all of that extra uh, build up and training reels to get to the point where you understand what stats mean or what equipment you need. And That's why I'm afraid to jump back into Elite Dangerous because I got a code, I've got it downloaded, I have my joystick. I even like hooked it, hooked everything up and thought about playing it last night. But I'm afraid of going into space because I don't even remember how to friggin' navigate through hyperspace or land. Yeah, and that's becoming more a problem as our as our games get bigger. Like it used to be the kind of thing that would just happen in in, in RPGs or like strategy games. Like I'd jump back into like a game of Disgaea two, and I'd be like, I, I don't remember what type of team I was building. I, I'm just gonna start over. <laughs> that's why I restarted my game of Bloodborne <laughs> because I was like, I don't know what it was I doing. Where do I go? Who is my character? What? How do I attack stuff? Like I was like, I better restart and just be able to build up from the start rather than trying to tackle like some pretty hard content without even remembering what the heck I was doing. Um, are you going to play the new DLC that's coming out next year? Blood and Wine, is it? Blood and Wine, yes. It looks like it takes the uh, the Geralt to uh, what looks to be a Mediterranean. <clears throat> Uh, area which I like has it already a lot more color uh, than many of the areas like the latter <laughs> the latter half is like skellige which is just like white and gray and brown enjoy um, I mean it's kind of Eastern <laughs> European like it was made by a team in Poland so like th that's what like they're thinking <laughs> <laughs> that's their context I guess yeah so that was uh, uh, to see uh, a brighter, uh, more vibrant place to have people's lives utterly ruined and destroyed uh, by Gerald R. Monsters. Uh, sounds fun to me. <laughs> yeah, it just, I, I think the moral of that story is, you heathens, eventually war is going to come to you and you're not going to be ready and then you're going to thank your your new overlords who are going to come in with their swords and their weapons and et cetera, which whatever, okay. Yeah, and, and more more than than The Witcher Three itself. Like again, it's my favorite RPG of the year, but more so than that, uh, The Witcher Three gives me grand grand hopes, which may be dashed against the shores of reality for cyber punk 2077 because i've always i enjoy fantasy but i've always been a more sci-fi person what uh, is cyberpunk 2077 for those who don't know uh that is uh cd projects red's next game uh which is going to be an uh, sci-fi rpg based on the classic uh pen and paper role-playing game so it's basically theoretically all of the uh, 
Magic of the Witcher 3's quest uh, writing and, and narrative design applied to a game where theoretically you'll be able to make your own character. Cool. So, yeah, that'll be pretty cool. That does sound pretty cool. So, all right. Second question. What do you what what was your main takeaway from this year's crop of RPGs overall? Open world everything? Yeah, kind of, <laughs> right? But that's games in general, right? Yeah, I mean that that's just uh, um that's my next uh if you read our site as you should. Um Yeah, what's your problem, man? Our 2015 and review pieces, my next uh, piece is open world everything. Uh, this is the year that uh, open world became the genre that everyone had to add to everything. Uh, a couple years ago it was uh, RPG mechanics being added to everything. Then for a while it was first person shooters way back in the day. You know, platformers. Uh, 3D platformers at one point. Uh, open world is just the thing. It's like now you need to check off that open world box in some some fashion. We need that bullet point on the thing. Uh, and I think we've gotten to the point that developers are doing them differently. Like there is always the the Ubisoft style of open world, which is pretty normal at this point. Uh, clearing different regions, side quests, all that stuff. And that, that seems to be the, the basic way to build an open world. But I think uh, Rich Witcher had more natural level design, and I've heard that uh, Xenoblade Chronicles X uh, is doing a wonderful open world uh, because the developer sort of moved away from focusing on the narrative and moved towards focusing on exploration instead. Yeah, it's totally a game where it's just like, well, have fun. <laughs> go go and do things. Um, it's almost kind of a true sandbox, except for the fact that you can't build stuff. So it, I, I feel like a lot of gamers want boundaries. But of course, if you give somebody boundaries then or structure, then it, it starts to feel more artificial. So that's like the catch-22 of game design, right? Um, but if... If you create a massive open world uh, and then just say, have fun, have at it, uh, there will be plenty of people who will have a great time and they'll go do awesome things on YouTube and there will be plenty of people who go, what do I do? I don't want to play this anymore. I quit. Goodbye. So, but no, you're not wrong. Uh, lots of open world everything kind of defines, well, at least at least the Western side. Um, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. That's the case with the Japanese side, Xenoblade Chronicles X notwithstanding. Uh, and um, uh, Takahashi, that was actually one of the news items I put up yesterday on the site. Takahashi talks about why that's the case, and creating that kind of open world is generally outside of the budgetary restrictions that most Japanese developers have, because most Japanese developers are making games with the expectation that they will sell to the smaller Japanese audience. Indeed. So he calls that, uh, I think he called it like a negative spiral. Uh, Japanese developers focus on a smaller audience. That requires a certain sort of cultural focus. 
and a certain budget, which is generally smaller, which pretty much prevents them from building these huge, sprawling open worlds. Mike Williams, thanks for dropping by and sharing your perspective on RPGs. Um, we can follow you on Twitter at Automatic Zen. And of course, you're covering news for us over on US Gamer. And we'll have you back next year when we talk about what we're looking forward to in 2015. But other than that, thanks for sharing your perspective, Mike, and great job this year. And we'll talk to you later. Thank you, and I'll talk to you guys later. Continuing on with our RPG Palooza 2015, I've got here Bob Mackey. And Bob, we're going to ask you the same two questions that I asked Mike. So first question, the big question, what is your favorite RPG of 2015? I'm going to have to go with Bloodborne, which is an RPG. I'm saying it right now. Well, we've had two action games so far. <laughs> That's not an RPG. It is. Trust me. All right. So make your case for Bloodborne. And though you kind of you kind of did in the previous episode, and we've heard you say it before, but I, I feel like it, it bears repeating again because, I mean, Bloodborne did come out back in, like, March, and people are like going, Bloodborne, man, that came out like five million years ago in gaming terms. So I'm, I haven't even been thinking about it. Like, what makes Bloodborne your favorite RPG of 2015? Well, it's a, uh, it's a fantastic horror game, actually. And that's, that's a, a kind of, uh, theming I rarely see with RPGs. So that, that's something that really makes it stand out for me is the, the whole, lo- I think it's like, um, I might have said this in the podcast I did with Mike a while back, but, um, it is the best Lovecraft game ever, and that even counts things with like HP Lovecraft Presents or like The Call of Whatever. Like this game is not licensed by Lovecraft, or it doesn't like say the name Lovecraft, but it is literally the best Lovecraftian horror game ever made. Period. And uh, that number one is like even if it wasn't an RPG and it was just the straight up horror, um, I would totally dig it. But it's all the RPG stuff that adds more to it, and. Um, like I said uh, before in articles and whatnot, it, it's not as um, uh, varied as Dark Souls. It doesn't offer as many customization options as Dark Souls, but that doesn't mean it's worse. It's just a different take on this kind of design philosophy, and I feel like they're going to carry this into in different directions after Dark Souls 3 comes out this year. They're definitely going to be trying to attempt different styles of play with the same like fundamental um, like I said, philosophy or rules behind it. Okay, so I'm just going to play devil's advocate here. Okay. When you look at a Souls game or Bloodborne, they're good games. Um, in terms of graphics, they're, I'd say, above average. Um, they, they tend to be really janky and really opaque and inaccessible. I wouldn't. And, oh, wait. wait oh, oh, sorry. Let me finish, Bob. Let <laughs> me right. finish. This is like the Republican I, debate all over again. <laughs> I'm making my devil's advocate argument, okay? okay? Um, they're really hard. What is it about these games that speak to people? Like, what is it that just make people friggin' love these games? Well, I, I will say, I, I don't believe Bloodborne is janky. I don't think it has any of the jank you would normally associate with um, From Software. The, they, the- finally, they finally got rid of the jank. Like the fun jankiness, not like the, oh, this boss is broken. 
So you're asking me what what appeals to um people? What is it about these games that not only appeals to people but has maybe the most devoted fan base in gaming right now? Well, I really feel like um especially with Dark Souls, it was a real wake-up call to people, uh people who were playing games their entire lives. Like um I made this comparison before that uh Devil May Cry was a game made for people who play video games. That's what the director said when he made the game, and that's why I feel like it's so good. It like it's hard from the get go. It's it's a trial by fire experience, and it trusts that you are bringing knowledge from playing video games into it, and it often subverts that knowledge, and it often like lets you use that knowledge to your advantage. I feel the same way about Souls, in that these games are designed for people who like video games. And not every game is designed for people who play video games. I think a lot of expensive AAA games are designed to be like, this could conceivably be your first video game. You could be uh, a regular Joe out there. Hey, what's this PS4 about? What's this Star Wars game? I'll play that. That game is designed so anyone can conceivably pick up the controller and play it. And I feel like these games are for, God dare I say it, the gamer. The the person who is is steeped in video game knowledge and and knows what a video game should be and does not need to know how to like uh, use the analog stick to move forward and hit this button to jump like these things are all dismissed because it's like no you know how to play a video game let's play a video game and I think that level of confidence that level of trust and the complete lack of patronization is why people love these games. Lots of people. I mean, there are lots of hard games, and there are lots of games that don't patronize you, but Dark Souls seem to break out in a way that you haven't seen from a lot of uh, a lot of games from, say, comparable designers. Because we, if you remember, like From Software, in circa 2011, was nothing, right? Like they made Demon Souls. But mostly they were that company that had made Armored Core and people had very little respect for what, for what they had done. And then all of a sudden, bam, it was Dark Souls, like Demon Souls started, but Dark Souls like really broke out in a way that Demon Souls didn't quite manage. So Demon Souls did very well. Why this game? Why has the Souls series and Bloodborne been able to break out and just really seem to touch a nerve? Because it's touched a popular nerve that other games, which while very good and very deep and hard and gamers games and all that simply haven't. Well, I think those games don't have the sort of authenticity that the Souls series has in terms of um, knowing what people who play video games want to see and knowing what annoys them. And I feel like you can make a game that's hard, but uh, from software games are difficult in a very intelligent way in that they the games are built around you prototyping different uh, attempts at at an obstacle. So even if you die, you're not set back too far. And so like every attempt is you getting closer to you know understanding what how the encounter should go, what you should do next. And I feel like that's the major difference with um, the Souls games and that um, the entire series really is bi- is based around just like repetition. And, and you know gaining experience and knowledge through repetition it's it's not so much how strong your character is it's really how uh how experienced you are in in terms of knowing the game i'm just gonna take it from a role-playing perspective and by the way um devil's advocate off <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or whatever um the thing that always stuck out to me from about the souls games was that i actually felt like the person with the sword, like the war, the lone warrior 
who's exploring these, these, these castles and these catacombs, these Victorian horror places. I felt almost from the start totally invested in that world, which is an incredible accomplishment given how spare the narrative actually is. But just everything about that game seems to be about putting you in the moment, right? Where whether it's you're walking down the hallway and you see like a monster coming at you and you have like a quiet, um, a quiet but deadly and terrifying duel and you barely come out on top and you have a sliver of health left and your heart's beating and you're like, oh my God, I almost died there. Or the fact that you don't actually know what's going on. It doesn't over explain everything and you're left to kind of figure things out as you go and explore things and slowly but surely develop a working understanding of the world or the way that it's all super seamless um, outside. Like even the, even going into a boss battle, like there's no, there's, it's, it's relatively rare that you hit a loading screen. Like all of these elements come together to make you feel like, okay, I am in this game. I am the lone warrior. Yeah, I don't disagree, and I think that um, really uh, the laws of supply and demand also apply to uh, narrative in video games, strangely enough, because like the less story that's in these games, the more valuable it is when you encounter it. So like the most you'll ever know about a character might be in like an item description, and that and that information is something you'll want to read because that's all you'll ever know about this person. And maybe someone will put a YouTube video together about this person. But I feel like, yeah, like there are very few distractions in this world. And it doesn't presume you're interested in this world before you start playing. Like it doesn't hit you with like a wall of text explaining like it is the year X and you are this person and these armies are, are fighting and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, you're just in this world and you don't know why and you have to figure it out from there. And that's essentially like why these games are so appealing. They don't presume you're interested in the story they're telling right off the bat they they make you interested by slowly feeding you these breadcrumbs yeah i think one of the things that has come to really bother me about games modern games is how artificial they feel like it's all very constructed it's all optimized to give players the best possible experience and as a result like i feel totally taken out of the game like i'm just I'm just not invested in it. I'm going through the paces. I'm I'm admiring the set pieces and going, wow, that's pretty cool and stuff. But because Blood Bloodborne is one of the most meticulously crafted, like the Souls games in general, Bloodborne I include in this, one of the most meticulously crafted games that I've ever played. But it doesn't feel artificial, right? It doesn't feel fake. And so as a result, I'm able to suspend my my disbelief and just throw myself wholeheartedly into that game. Like, I think a lot of, like, people go, <laughs> people look for different things in games, right? Some people just want to have, like, raw escapism. Some people are like, oh, I just want to play an action game. Some people are looking for an intellectual test. Uh, my favorite kinds of games are the ones where I can become fully invested in that world where I can forget for a moment that I live in, you know, 2015 or whatever, and now I'm, like, fighting through uh, dark, scary castles, or I'm raising po po monsters, or, hell, I'm coaching a football team to the Super Bowl. Like, these really, these experiences that, like, drive my imagination, if if you understand what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. I suppose a a, a broader question I might ask is, 
what does Bloodborne have that other RPGs don't have this year for you? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, God, I guess, I guess like a focus, really. A like focus. I, I, I really feel like every RPG must be this open world uh, thing with all these side activities and, um, you know, just your general open world stuff that gets packed in there. And while while Bloodborne is very open ended, you can you can tackle the game in, in quite a variety of orders. I feel like there's more of a focus on just like getting you to the next thing. There are very few distractions. There's lots of things to explore and find on your on your own time. But it's very organic. I feel the exploration is organic. You're not like you're not heading towards an icon on your mini map or like a waypoint or like looking at your quest log and, and checking things off. You're just like kind of exploring the world as you would if you were there in it. And I feel like that really contributes to um, the fun of exploration, the fun of, of, like, finding things. Like, in an Ubisoft game, when you find something, it's like, one of one million, find the rest. But in Bloodborne, you pick up an item, you're like, I don't know if there are more of these, I don't know the significance of this, I don't know how to use it yet. It just, uh, again, putting putting trust in the players and being confident about letting players figure things out on their own, that is what I feel like Bloodborne offers over other RPGs I played this year, where... Again, it's much more organic. You're not checking things off, and it's you're in the world. It's very, uh, dare I say, immersive. If that's a bad word, I'm sorry. It's immersive. All right. Well, I, I'll admit that I'm surprised that you didn't pick Undertale, given how enthusiastic you were for it once you played it. It's good. I mean, I feel like I all of my choices this year are way too predictable, and I apologize for that. But I feel that like um, Undertale's great, and I had a good couple afternoons with it that where I couldn't stop playing but I don't know if I'm going to go back to it anytime soon as good as that experience was and um but I still want to play Bloodborne and just just playing the DLC and reviewing it I was kind of sad like oh this is the last we'll ever see of Bloodborne because the content was so good and I and I was like there is room for so much um more in this game there's so much more to be told about the world there's so much more to explore but they're just kind of closing the gates and getting ready for Dark Souls 3 which is kind of disappointing but they went out with a bang, which is a good way to go out. I, I feel like no other DLC can compete with what From Software does. Oh, Bob, you know this isn't the last that we've seen of Bloodborne. I mean, it's 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 literally the last of Bloodborne 1. I, I yes. imagine there will eventually be a Bloodborne 2 or something, but this DLC is like, bam, sorry, no more Bloodborne content. Um, see you later, folks. I think the one thing that I'll say in the favor of um, annualization of the series is that Miyazaki is unpredictable and ultimately like kind of an artist in like the old the old school kind of way um when it comes to game design and it heartens me that Namco Bandai seems content to leave well alone well enough alone in just be like they're just like well just keep pumping out these games we don't care just do what do what you want to do and Miyazaki hasn't succumbed to maybe the allure of commercializing it and making it, I don't know, more accessible. I mean, it kind of has, but also not. Um, I, I'm trying to think of what I wanted to say with Miyazaki. Um, he's just very, no, he hasn't become bored with it either, which I, he seems to be finding new things to do with it continually, which is also good. Yeah, and and it's it's also uh, not just him. He works with like a ton of talented people. And I'm not saying that you're doing this at all. I don't oh, think I you're know. doing it, but I feel like people give uh, singular people a lot too much, uh, like way too much credit, especially in video games, 
because that's a reason a lot of people slag on Dark Souls 2 where it's like, uh, oh yeah, Miyazaki was not the director, therefore it's missing something. But you don't know... People that you never know the names of and never will could be responsible for some of your favorite things in the Soul series, but you will never know it. So it's not just one guy, although his vision is uh, fundamental to why the series is so good and why... He sets the course, right? Yeah, but I feel like there are so many talented people on working on these games that it can't just be one guy. And if it if it was, he must never sleep and <laughs> be some kind of superhuman creature. But yeah, like I feel um, we need to give more credit to the team as well, especially the, the guys who did Dark Souls Two, the two directors who did a phenomenal job, just kind of picking up where their where their uh, master left off. I, their master, I totally agree. Uh, yeah, no, there's a very talented team working on these games. Um, it certainly would not be where it is without the artists uh the people who can do the music the people who bring the the monsters to life the animators certainly because the yeah. animation in dark souls is generally very good like plus uh, all these things bottom you, yeah all these all these roles you don't even know what they are like system director and like just all these like sub roles which could be f- absolutely important how good these games feel and how good they play but again you'll never know who these people are because you can't possibly you know wheel out 30 people when you're promoting a game Absolutely not. Though some people try. Um, I once went and previewed a game where I think I interviewed every single lead on the team. And that was pretty exhausting. But So, Bob, second question. What is your main takeaway from this year in RPGs? That's a good question. Um, Can you... Trying to can you refresh, refresh my memory? Like, what were the big RPGs this year? Monster Hunter Four Ultimate, probably um, Witcher Three, Fallout Four, Fallout Four, Undertale is arguably fairly big. Yeah, I would, I would throw SteamWorld Heist in there. Um, not as a big RPG, but as a good RPG. Uh, Pillars of Eternity came out this year. Uh, Xenoblade Chronicles X came out this year, etc. I feel. A little conflicted about the fact that every again um why i like bloodborne is the fact that it's more focused but a lot of these rpgs are these huge open world things that will take you 100 hours if you want to do most of the things and as far as content goes there's a lot of it but i really appreciate a more focused game sometimes and like again like um fallout 4 metal gear solid 5 the witcher 3 they're all different but they're actually all kind of the same too and just how they play and what you're doing and what you're finding and how you're scavenging everything but uh that's why i appreciate things like bloodborne and also yakuza 5 which i'm playing a lot of right now and it's just like this is just an old-fashioned rpg that's super focused with a lot of side stories to do but it's not so big you'll get distracted and i feel like i'm much more into these more focused experiences because like going back to metal gear which i haven't finished and Fallout 4, which I haven't finished, um, they are kind of leaving me cold, and I, I don't want them to, but it's just like, man, I, do I have to play 50 more hours of this to get to the end? So, yeah, that's kind of what I feel. Like, I'd like to see more more than just the, you know, standard open-world approach to RPGs. I'd like to see some more focused ones, and I feel like um, there's only been a few of those uh, this year that I've really enjoyed. You really ended up enjoying Yakuza 5, didn't you? I did. I wanted to talk about it today just to troll your audience. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Go ahead, talk about it. I well, don't I mean, care. It's, I mean, it is just like, like these super time-tested Japanese design tropes wrapped in a package that is very just comfortable and, um, I don't know, like comfort food. If you grew up with like 16 and 32-bit RPGs, this game feels like the games that Sega 
I don't know, like, this is essentially like just Sega in a nutshell. This is just them doing the best that they can. And I feel like these games are uh, not given enough attention because it's just like a lot of crazy stuff packed into this this fun world that's not, again, not too overwhelming. But um, with all of your standard RPG stuff, like experience points, random battles, equipments, uh, crafting even, I mean, like there is something for everybody, but you don't have to do everything. So I don't know. I don't know if I'm just rambling, but I've really been enjoying Yakuza 5, and uh, it's only 40 bucks, and you should play it if your PS3 is still hooked up, because uh, it's uh, it's a fun traditional series, and uh, I'm, I've been digging it. We were talking about Yakuza 5 yesterday over drinks. Yes, US Gamer does hang out together occasionally. <laughs> we don't all hate, hate each other. It just seems like that on radio. Wow. <laughs> i um, these episodes. And <laughs> Yakuza 5... Um, like tying a bit into like people want games for different reasons. Um, I think it was you who said that Yakuza 5, you imagine, is that game that maybe somebody who hasn't played games in a long time picks up for the first time in ages. And it's very comforting and it's very much set in its own ways, but it doesn't really care. And it invokes a, well, it's, it tells a story almost like a Japanese soap opera would tell a story. And it brings back to mind the old days of when cutscenes were king, because it's like so aggressively like, you're going to sit here and watch this cutscene and watch these famous Japanese uh, actors talk. And this, this movie or this show that you're watching is unapologetically Japanese. We're not even going to try to play to a global audience. Just enjoy it. Go. Yeah, that's what I like about it. It's just it's just confident in being set in its ways, and a lot of that stuff is not for the best. Like it is a little clunky. It is it does have some of like the janky charm of like Deadly Premonition, although it's not nearly that janky. But I I just find that like I like that they are set in their ways, even if I have to watch an extra long cutscene now and then. It just it just brings me back to an era like Yakuza could have been like a PlayStation game, and I would have loved it. But now it's a PlayStation Three game. And I love it even more because it's very, very pretty, I should say. Like, I'm surprised that this is a 2012 release. We're getting three years later. And I'm not completely, like, appalled by the uh, by the, the the human characters. They're not Uncanny Valley at all. And I don't know how they did that because they're 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 shockingly realistic. They looked great in Yakuza 4, too. Like. Yeah, like, Sega, this is probably the only big series they have left now, I think. Am I, am I wrong? Uh, Valkyria? Uh, I said big series, Kat. <laughs> Valkyria counts. I would argue Valkyria is a much bigger series than Yakuza. Sure, Yakuza is bigger in Japan, but Yak- Valkyria has a global presence that Yakuza mm. simply can't match. Well, it's I a guess... modest global presence, but it's a global presence. I guess it's it's their biggest internally developed game. Like I don't feel like they, they're mm. doing anything this big, and they're putting all of their resources behind it, and it really shows. Like I feel like even if. Japanese culture is completely alien to you it's fun to I don't know like for me it's like kind of like tourism it's just like I get to go to this different place and this in this um game is all built around values that are kind of foreign to me it's like this Japanese this uh, you're you're playing basically like the paragon of Japanese masculinity but at the same time he's also like the complete opposite of a Grand Theft Auto hero and that like your first mission is buying a gift to apologize to a rival taxi cab company because you cut in line and you pick up trash on the street to raise your citizenship level. It's like he's like the biggest, uh, most violent Boy Scout in the universe, which is like just so silly and great to me. Like I'm so sick of uh, the boring cynicism of Grand Theft Auto. It's fun to be a good guy that kicks ass occasionally. Like 
I don't know, just so charming to me. And um, I don't see anyone writing about it. I don't see a lot of people talking about it. And uh, that's a shame. I mean, I, I assume PlayStation or Sega could give it a little more boost in like PR or something like that. But um, I don't know. Like, I feel like it's one of this year's kind of overlooked games. Well, you can check out, well, you have been writing about it, and you can check out your article about it over on US Gamer. Um, and of course, you can also follow, uh, Bob over on Twitter at Bob Servo, where he will tell you wonderful, delightful things about his bird and whatever he's playing at that moment. And also The Simpsons. Oh, yeah. Because you're doing a podcast called Talking Simpsons. That's right, Talking and, Simpsons, and it's a chronological exploration. We do one for every episode. It's not a commentary, but we'll walk you through it. We'll tell you all the references that are so dated that you don't even know that they're references. Are, are we at that point now? I guess, I mean, I guess the last Simpsons episode I, wrote, I watched was 15 years ago. So. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's been a long time at this point. So, Oh, and I wanted to say, like, we, we're kind of out of time, and unfortunately we didn't get to it, but really quickly... You wrote an article in your 2015 in review series called uh, the, G- the 3DS has ascended to JRPG godhood. And really quickly, like very, very quickly, could you make your argument for why that's the case? Well, I mean, it basically uh, inherited the legacy that the PSP and the DS did where these these developers, they, they literally can't afford to make RPGs of the same scope on consoles anymore because of production value. So they, they just shifted their efforts to something that's a little more manageable. Excuse me. And that's essentially what the DS is. I, I will admit that, um, sorry, the 3DS, I will admit the library is not as deep as what the PSP and the DS offered because, you know, mobile gaming has changed that a lot. But um, if you look at just all the RPGs that are coming out and all, all the RPGs that are going to come out, uh, or have come out rather, uh, like I feel like the 3DS library is maybe like 70% JRPG at this point. <laughs> If you're into this genre, there's nothing, there's no system better, period. Like, counting, ne- even if you only uh, count next year. Vita, mm, maybe Vita. Yeah, if you like bad RPGs. The Vita not only encompasses the PSP-like library, which is a big deal, to be honest, because you can play games like Persona 3 Portable. Yes, but you can't play all the games. Um, and there are good RPGs coming out for the PS Vita. Like, I can't think of any that off my top of my head, but I'm definitely playing Trails of Cold Steel on it right now. And that's true. But, I mean, that's also a PC game, right? Is it? Is it out on PC? I thought it was. I could be wrong. It's on PS3 for sure. But I, I'm just meaning, like, in terms of new releases or software developed mm-hmm. for the system, I feel like the 3DS is on top, period. Like, next year is, um, for us, like, Paper Mario... Uh, the two Fire Emblem games and Dragon Quest Seven VII and Eight and something else I know I'm forgetting like just just those like six games that, that's enough for an entire year I think of just I, gaming I, period. I agree. It it should tell you something that the Vita's single best game is a remake of a PS2 game, <laughs> Persona Four yes. Golden. But actually, and I I don't mean to call anyone out, but they're like um, I was like when I tweeted that article, someone was like, well, what about Persona Four Golden? I was like, yeah, that was 2012. You know, it's just. It's been three years, and that's still the best game on the Vita, the best RPG on the Vita. Oh, my God. You're going to have so many haters coming down on you. I, I'm okay with the Vita. Go after him. Yes, please go after me. I mean, I would like the Vita if um, I just feel that the uh, the RPGs that are, that are being made for it are just for the hardcore otaku market who like, um, you know, erotic, uh, more erotic content. And that's fine if you like it. But I, I like to play games uh, that aren't just that. 
So I feel like that's kind of what the Vita is doubling down on, and I find it a little disappointing. Of course, you've probably heard me say this before. It's nothing new. Ending on a positive note and a controversial note. Bob Mackey, thanks very much, and we'll see you on the site. Yep, yep. For our final segment, about TA minus two and a half hours before I head out to go see the new Star Wars movie, which is dating this podcast a little bit, but I don't care. I can enjoy my last couple hours of innocence before I have another Star Wars movie ruined for me. Who knows? Maybe I'll end up liking it. I don't know. <laughs> I but hope so. Nadia Oxford, who Hi. is joining our podcast for the first time, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And we've been friends or like colleagues or whatever for a lot of years now. We have. But we've never actually met, which I think is funny. Funny and and sad. Also, you've never been on a podcast with me. Have I never been on Retronauts with you or anything like that? Not to my knowledge, no. Oh, that is is a shame. The dark secret is that when I was at 1UP, A, I didn't work there. Uh, I was just a contractor. Um, mm-hmm. B, I was on Retronauts like three times, maybe. Like, I was uh, rarely on Retronauts. I was always on Active Time Babble. Oh, I was never on that. So, yeah. there we are. Yeah, I wasn't cool enough to be on Retronauts with Jeremy and Shane, <laughs> so. Uh, except for a couple instances. But anyway, let's get to the questions. So, as I asked Mike and Bob, Nadia... Yes. What is your favorite RPG of 2015? Well, that's an easy one. My favorite RPG uh, of the year is the same answer as my favorite game of the year, which is Undertale. Is Undertale an RPG or an adventure game? I'm... Oh, dear. Now you've done it. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and count it as an RPG, an action RPG, maybe. Um, It is unorthodox. I will give you that. But then it takes so much from from Earthbound that I just kind of automatically think in my head, oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. this is an RPG. But at the same time, it's not traditional in any sense of the word because you don't have the menu base commands. Well, you do, but it's all mixed up with action. Oh, now now you've done it. (laughs) I'm going to be thinking about this all night. Uh, We've talked about this on this podcast. Maybe I've talked about it elsewhere. But, you know, Undertale is one of those games like, where it uses the facade of being an RPG mm-hmm. to kind of deconstruct the genre, I would say. Yeah, it, it, it definitely deconstructs the genre as well as several other genres and just video games in general. Uh, but when I think about it, I automatically think RPG. Um, so as they say, that is my answer and I'm sticking to it. I mean, that's what it looks like, right? I mean, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when you go into a battle, it's like first person, you have mm-hmm. monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little thing on the bottom where like you have little mini games that you play, which is very different. But really, all you can do is attack and talk. Well, you can show mercy. Right. You can, you can use items. <laughs> yeah. You can use items and eat pie yes. to restore health. And mm-hmm. as soon as I saw show mercy... Mm-hmm. I immediately was like, oh, no, it's one of these games. It's, you know what, I honestly thought the same thing, because it's like, oh, God, this game's going to preach to me. It really doesn't. It's, um, you can use, uh, you you can play as a pacifist, and, but like I was saying to Mike the other day, 
you cannot get the whole game experience unless you play all three of the main groups, which is genocide, neutral, and pacifist. Uh, if you don't play all three of those routes, you won't get the whole experience, you won't get the whole story, you won't get all the battles. Nothing is really like, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, I mean, playing genocide, you are kind of made to think, made to realize, oh my gosh, you are a horrible person, but not through like any direct messages, but rather through things NPCs say to you, the music that you hear, because the music changes drastically, the whole atmosphere changes drastically if you go around killing everything, but it is absolutely not a preachy game. Um, I can definitely verify that as part of why I liked it so much, because I expected it to be, and it was just, it wasn't. I liked how it kind of played around with the um, video game conventions, I suppose you could say, where like, I, I think one of the first things I noticed was uh, they asked the goat lady or whatever she is. <laughs> Toriel, yeah. Yeah, she asked me a question. Um, and it was just a random question. I was like, oh, okay. So I answered it. And then I died, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I died. And I reloaded. And we got back to that part again. And she starts to ask me the question. And then she goes, oh, I already asked you this question. You know the answer is this. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, yeah, whoa, okay, so, like, you actually know what I'm talking about. That's kind of cool. Yeah, the game definitely does a lot of that, a lot of fourth wall breaking. It's basically basically as if Psychomantis and Gygus had a baby. That's kind of describes Undertale to me. Felt a little like the game was self-aware. Uh, and, yeah, I, I think Hideo Kojima's games are a really good point of comparison. Mm -hmm. You breaking the fourth wall, getting very meta... Yes, it's uh, extremely it's a popular meta. Thing. It's a popular thing in games these days, especially indie games. Yeah. Now, what do you? How do you respond to the accusations that it is a little preachy and a little uh, twee? I guess you could say. Um, I personally never never felt like that. Um, do you know of any examples where people were saying it was a little too preachy and twee, like story examples? Oh, you know, a story specific story examples. Well. I think it's more of a a general. Um, I, I think people are applying this more generally toward indie games. Like it's it, it's almost like a cliche at this point, right? Where people will go, "Oh, this game's getting overly cutesy with with conventions." Um, yeah. Um, to be honest with you, thinking about it, uh, of course, Undertale reminded me of Earthbound and Mother Three, both of which I adore. Uh, and I guess I was comparing it to, like, I'm not saying that it doesn't ever preach at you or it's never twee or anything like that, but when I think about it, Mother 3, which, you know, I would, I absolutely inhaled, that game was preachy as heck. And mm -hmm. I, I have no problem saying that. So holding, I guess I just kind of automatically held Undertale beside it and say, oh, okay, well, this game isn't outright, you know, kicking me in the face telling me how our modern society of our conveniences is evil and destroying the innocence of humanity, which, let's be frank, Mother 3 does a lot of that. Well, I'm okay with the game preaching at me, to be perfectly honest. I just, <laughs> wanted, to, I just wanted to hear your opinion on that. I, I will say that if it does preach, it, it's it's very subtle about it. It has a message, but it's it it, it, it it's very subtle. It's What do you I think know, the message is, ultimately? Uh, not to spoil anything, but there is a point where something is stated outright, and that is, don't kill and don't be killed. That's the best you can hope for. I mean, 
I don't think that's necessarily a controversial message, but unfortunately, no, I... um, some people might say it is. I, it, unfortunate, it's kind of unfortunate, and I sort of hate bringing this up, but Undertale seems to have become the new favorite target of the group of people who, for example, hated Gone Home and that sort of game. Yeah, it, that kind of really makes me sad. And what, what makes me very sad about it is that, I don't know, when I first started playing, I, start, I started playing the game at the, I think it was the start of October, and there wasn't really any of that. Everybody from, like, every corner of gaming, they were like, oh, this is a cool, this is a fun game. This is really original. I, I, the music's fantastic. Just, oh, yeah. just mind-blowing. Uh, it was only, I guess, when people started pointing out, hey, it's really positive that this character is, you know, has no gender, ha you know, it has, like, positive messages. People said, wait a minute, this game is trying to, to preach at me. Like, this this is it's not what I want. the transgender agenda that's... Exactly, exactly. World. I mean, we all know about the game FAQ's poll situation. But at the same time, like... Okay, so what is your opinion of the actual... This, this is where it gets dicey, right? I mm -hmm. mean, when you start like going, well, okay, what do you think of the gameplay? And right. then you start to go, well, does that really matter? And that that's when you get into like games as like trying to tell a story and having like a narrative and that kind of thing. And yeah. then you have games as constructs, right? Yeah. And you use just like mechanical things that are a series of systems put together that ultimately become something of a whole. Mm -hmm. and it's hard to separate them from one another. Yeah. So are you basically asking me if this the gameplay holds up to the story and the message and just the... the... More or less. <laughs> is it a game? Absolutely. Um, have, how much have you played of it? You've played... Um, oh, probably like the first hour or so. Yeah, so you would probably just like in the ruins, for example. Yeah. Um, later on in the game, some of the battles can get pretty intense, especially if you're trying to be a pacifist and you don't want to hurt anything. Um, it's very much like a, a bullet hell shoot em up is how, what the comparison I've heard, trying to dodge the attacks that enemies throw at you. Mm -hmm. uh, that takes skill, especially without, again, without spoiling too much. If you're taking a genocide route and you're going around, you know, killing everything like it's, you know, like a holiday, you will come up against bosses that are not going to let you do that for very long. And those bosses are infamously hard. I could not personally get past the first one. Um, I am not exactly, like, I've been playing games since I was four. I'm not super gamer number one by any means, but I just threw up my hand and said, there is no way this is happening. Super gamer number one. Yeah. That can be your new title over at US Gamer. Yes. What route did you take? Oh, I've done, uh, first I did neutral. Uh, then I did pacifist. And then I tried to do genocide, but... Again, I sucked at it, number one. Number two, it really does kind of screw with your head when you have these characters that are like, you've met twice over and you've kind of grown to love, and then it's like, oh, you have to kill them. And it's just really brutal. Like, there is no forgiveness in what you do. There is no light shining in your eyes or any, like, sort of hidden goodness inside of you. Like, there is, you are just rotten, like, attacking children, like, you know, here's a story that I kind of relate to Mike about it. You enter the first town after you've, like, kind of obliterated everything in your path. The town's empty. Everyone's gone. There's, like, this creepy slow music playing. You go into the first store that you see where usually there's this happy little bunny lady saying, oh, hi, welcome to my store. Uh, when you 
check out what's there, there's a note on the counter, and all it says is, please don't hurt my family. And then you can go ahead, you can rob the till, you can take all the items you want for free. It's... and then it just kind of gets worse from there. It, it's pretty dark. I wonder how many people went the genocide route first. Because I'm betting that the overall proportion of the of the audience went neutral initially. Yeah, that's usually what happens. It was like, <laughs> because in my case, at least, it was like, oh, okay, show mercy. Well, I guess I'll show mercy. And then you get into this little dialogue tree, right? Yeah. And like the animal or the monsters or whatever, they all have their own lines mm -hmm. and they ask you questions. And if you get the question wrong, they'll be like, oh, um, screw you and they'll attack you. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's kind of the thing, like especially towards the end of the game when I first played, it is it gets harder sometimes to show mercy uh, because you got to kind of endure these attacks while you you know you're trying to get them to, to stop fighting and you know a couple of times I just lost my patience said no oh, I tried that was the end of them and of course if you're taking the pacifist route you can't level up which means you can't increase your hit points so it, most people I think are going to go neutral but if you want to do a genocide genocide it, it's a little different than what you might expect like. You know how you, you come across random encounters in each area, right? Uh, with genocide, if you want to do it like thoroughly, you have to wander around until you encounter uh, every single character, sorry, every single enemy that you can encounter and kill them all. And you'll know that you've killed them all when you get a little message box that pops up and says, like when you get into a, uh, when you get into a battle, and a little message box pops up and says, but nobody came. So that's how you know you've, well, gone ahead and... Uh, done away with that population. <laughs> what do you think of Undertale in kind of the context of the overall genre? It's, um, as I said, it's very unorthodox. It's very emotional. It really, it, it made a huge impact on me, and I wasn't expecting it to. That's kind of what I guess is part of the reason I'm so affectionate towards it. Um, it's, on the other hand, I can totally understand why some people are like playing it and they're like, I don't get this. Um, so if you're like an RPG fan and you're like, I really don't like Undertale, I'll be like, I, I can totally understand why. Um, it's a little weird. It's a little different. I would, I would encourage you to keep playing to try it again. Uh, I'll actually be honest with you. The first time I played Earthbound, I was like, what the heck is this? And I, I tried it again sometime later and I was like, oh, okay, I get this now. And it, I guess with some people, maybe the same with Undertale. Um, and of course it's not... A traditional RPG, whereas you think, oh, the more I fight, the more I level up, the more powerful I get. You can't really do any of that if you're trying to be a pacifist. So I would recommend it to RPG fans, but if you don't like it, I won't try to kill you online, I promise. The thing is, <clears throat> I think that the genre can definitely benefit from broadening its horizons a little bit. Uh -huh. I mean... <clears throat> We have been, like, RPGs obviously have had plenty of um, innovation over the years. Mm -hmm. uh, you've had lots of new systems and interesting systems. But by and large, it's all been really focused toward a goal of making the combat more interesting, for example. Yeah. You've had games like Fallout, the original Fallout, not like Fallout 3, mm -hmm. um, where they've done some really interesting things with dialogue and that kind of thing. Yeah. And Bioware's done a really good job of kind of putting you in a role of a character and having you, like, 
make really important choices, and that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But um, Undertale is just interesting because it doesn't have systems per se. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like hugely focused on customization. And RPGs are usually all customization, right? Yeah, like, you're right. You judge an RPG on how customizable it actually is. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to go this route and have them say, well, okay, well, let's redefine maybe this genre that's as old as the medium as it is, as, as old as the medium itself, and maybe in some cases a little older. Yeah. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. No. Uh, what it all comes down to is new ideas are always good. Yes. If you don't like it, for God's sake, there's enough traditional RPGs. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> go play Pillars of Eternity. I would say go play Dragon Quest. Oh, yeah. I mean, Dragon Quest is always good. It's coming yeah. out next year. It, yeah, I am so excited. I can't even. So, okay, second question, Nadia. Yes. What's your main takeaway from this year in RPGs? Well, it's, it's funny that you, uh, would that we're talking about Dragon Quest, because um, the thing I'm thinking a lot about RPGs lately is people tend to say, oh, JRPGs are dead, and, you know, that's not true, obviously, but I've been playing a lot of them, and they've been scattered across a whole bunch of different systems, and I just find that really interesting. Like, I was replaying all the Dragon Quests, and they were all on my mobile phone. And, um, you know, between... There's there's that, there's, of course, the... Fallout 4 on PlayStation 4. There's Xenoblade, which I'm huge into. Uh, I haven't had time to really dive into it, but, you know, that's on Wii U. And you have all these, just all these different RPG experiences across this whole multitude of platforms, and I think we're just really lucky. I've, mm-hmm. I've had a, a great, a lot of fun this this year with RPGs. Yeah, um, one thing that stood out to me when a bunch of stuff was being announced at the PlayStation experience mm-hmm. was how Japan heavy it was. Yes. Yeah, like so many of the announcements were like so much of the stuff that was getting all of the hype from Nino Kuni 2 to the Final Fantasy 7 remake. Mm-hmm. And then a little later, like Kojima, like signing the exclusive deal with Sony. Yeah. Um, so much of that is Japan focused and it's a, it's a little narrowly focused. Um, mm-hmm. You don't see new players coming out of the woodwork in the same way that you do, you did before. Yeah, ad- admittedly, but um, I I have I can't lie. I'm just I'm just really stoked. I'm on the ceiling about Final Fantasy VII remake. Like, Ooh. I, I'm just you know <laughs> high pitched excited puppy noise right here. All right, in one like sentence, encapsulate why you're so pumped for Final Fantasy VII remake. It's um, not a perfect RPG by any means, like the original, but I find myself going back to it a lot. Um. It's, it, it's so ambitious, and it has so much atmosphere, and I don't know if it's going to be completely destroyed in the, in the remake. It probably will. Uh, but you know what? Maybe part of it is I'm really looking forward to having this game with a story that makes sense, except I'm really fooling myself here, aren't I? Because the trans- say a story that makes sense? <laughs> well, what I mean is the translation will be a lot better, but beyond that, well, I guess everything's just kind of black territory, isn't it? Was it a good year for RPGs? I think so, although I think a lot of that is also anticipation. Like you say, uh, Zelda next year, Final Fantasy next year, I think. Um, but then again, you have, like, towards the end, it got really exciting. Like, Undertale 
like I already raved about, you know, blew me away, and uh, Xenoblade X Chronicles X blew me away. Oh, I it played. Did. Oh yeah, I loved it. Have you, you you've played it, right? I have played it. Yes. You didn't like it much. Yeah. Did I put you on a spot? <laughs> Xenoblade Chronicle. I, I mean, I haven't finished it or anything. Well, no, you're probably not going to do that till you're ninety. Xenoblade Chronicles X is a really interesting game that is not necessarily my cup of tea. That I can totally, totally accept that. I love the original, so it is basically the original times fifty. Um, yeah, I I thought the original was pretty good. Yeah, um, see, I, I can I prefer I get the that. original, so. The original was definitely less complicated, I'll give it that. I admire Xenoblade Chronicles X's ambition. Yes. Um, and its willingness to strike out and do what it wants and not stick to open world conventions. Mm -hmm. A lot of this episode has been about open world design and that kind of thing, and Xenoblade Chronicles X has come up a couple times. Yeah, it's pretty much as open as it gets. I, um... I like more focused, more tactical experiences when I'm playing yeah. RPGs, and like exploration for the sake of exploration has never really been my thing. But yeah. it spoke to you, though. Yeah, I love exploring for the sake of exploring, like Skyrim, just like, hey, I see that mountain over there, I'm going to walk to it. Well, I love that sort of thing. The thing with Skyrim is that you're going to find stuff. You're not going to... I feel like Xenoblade Chronicles X is a little more empty. I mean, there are lots of monsters to kill. That's part of it for me. See, I love the I love the the life forms and stuff. That's kind of what appealed to me. With with Skyrim, admittedly, like I love that too. But it's like, oh, here's a cave. Oh God, there's more of those zombie things in there. Like, <laughs> it all kind of looks the same after a while. But you know, I think both of us can kind of agree that hopefully Zelda Wii U will kind of meet in the middle somewhere. I'm really, I mean, I this might be stepping on the toes of the preview podcast, like, next year. Mm -hmm. But I am really pumped for the new Zelda. Like, yes. Like, this is the most pumped I've been for a Zelda in ages. Yeah, and we know so little about it, but something about it just looks really compelling. You know, getting back to, like, JRPGs, mm -hmm. I, I don't know, I don't think it was a very strong year for JRPGs. Mm -hmm. Like, there were some JRPGs that were good. Yeah. Uh, Trails of Cold Steel, I am reserving judgment on while I play it. Mm -hmm. um, there was Tales of Zestiria, which uh, the Tales is is very much comfort food. Yeah, I'm very on and off with Tales games. I've never really gone into them, to be honest with you. Uh, there was Legend of Legacy, which got a lot of excitement. It drew a lot of excitement early on, but seemed to fade from the public eye relatively quickly. Yeah. Uh, so beyond that, it's kind of like, eh. I, I, I was really pumped for Persona 5 maybe coming out this year. Which, and, yeah. And it obviously didn't. So I feel like that's like the big ticket. <laughs> There's a, a lot of people I know who are really, they were so sad about that. Like, uh, it's funny, the person I buy my cat food from, the, the store, uh, I went to go bring a bag of cat food to the counter, and she's like, Persona 5 was delayed! <laughs> and I was like, I'm so sorry. I was, I was thinking of you when I heard about that. Oh, Yeah. Um, it gave me time to focus on, like, Fallout 4 and that kind of thing. Yeah. Which I, I'm glad for and everything. And there are a lot of, there are plenty of rich gaming experiences, but most of my favorite RPGs this year have Definitely been on the Western. Uh, yeah, I will say, like, uh, it's been a pretty good year for RPGs, but JRPG is a little bit on the, the lean side. 
But I mean, like next year we're gonna get like Fire Emblem Fates. Yes. I mean, we're going to get, um, uh, sorry, Persona Five. Mm-hmm. We're gonna get maybe Final Fantasy Fifteen, but probably not. Probably I mean, not. We, get, <laughs> we got Type Zero HD, which for some reason has flown under the radar too. Yeah, I was thinking about that because I haven't played it, but. I remember, like, hearing about it. It was one of those things you hear about once in a while, but no one really has attaches any substance to what they're talking about. They're just like, oh, Final Fantasy Type-0 HD. And then they, it's like, is this they stop talking? It just... It's not bad. Yeah. The the thing with that game, though, is that it's a very much a, a high-res PSP game. It yeah. It feels like it. it. Yeah. It feels like it when you're playing it, which... And maybe that doesn't do the PSP game justice because the PSP game was really good. Mm-hmm. I never got to play it, but uh, I, I was thinking about it just the other day, thinking, you know, what? I'm kind of curious. Maybe I'll maybe I'll go for it at some point. Well, in any case, thanks for your contributions to the podcast, Nadia. Oh, you're very welcome. You, what's your name on Twitter so that people can follow you? Oh, I'm easy. I'm Nadia Oxford. One word. Well, there you go, Nadia Oxford, and. What do you have anything to plug? Uh, I actually run my own uh, game website, tinygirltinygames.com. That's one word as well. Uh, I mostly focus on uh, portable games, but I cheat sometimes and just kind of talk about what I want to talk about. <laughs> so there's a lot of essays and stuff, a couple of reviews. Um, I actually look a lot into game music as well. I, I hope you check it out and uh, let me know what you think. I'll tell, I'll tell you a secret. That's mostly what I do on US Gamer. Like sometimes I just go, ah, eh, screw it. I won't. I'm going to talk about whatever the heck I want. And yeah, I and that's that's where the best writing comes from, as far as I'm concerned. It tends to work out fairly well. I yeah. mean, it hasn't been a total disaster, at least. And Nadia, like you have been contributing um, to US Gamer pretty much since the beginning, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you are having a, an increased role on the site next year. Yes, I am. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm already doing some news. Uh, I'm going to be in a part-time capacity, as far as I understand, uh, and we'll see where things go from there. Yeah, you'll be doing news and doing lists still, I assume. Yeah, a lot of my old duties will still be there. Yep, and you'll be on this podcast from time yes, to time. Yes, I am so. definitely going to be podcasting a little bit more. And don't worry, everybody, we got another JRPG fan here. <laughs> Yay! And another Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy nuts, so you don't mm-hmm. have to worry about that too much. Yeah. So. Nadia, it's been a pleasure, and we will see you next year. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much. It's been an interesting year for RPGs. Uh, A lot of the RPGs that I was really looking forward to, specifically Persona 5 and Darkest Dungeon, ended up getting pushed until next year. As usual, when you look at the RPGs that are coming out the following year, the following year always looks, you know, slightly better, slightly more exciting. And I'll admit that I am really looking forward to Fire Emblem, SMT Cross, uh, Shimagami, SMT Cross Fire Emblem, sorry, Persona 5, and if you want to count it, Legend of Zelda, whatever, I don't care. We can count it. But, so, do me a favor and send in your list of your five favorite favorite RPGs, maybe send me an email, maybe put it in the comments of the news post, and I'll read it on the show. Um, I have a I have a feeling 
that there are a lot of games that I didn't mention, um, especially in the JRPG space that you're going to want to advocate for. So let me hear it. I want to know. I want to know what your favorite RPG was. In the meantime, this is the end of 2015 for us. I am going to go watch Star Wars, and then I'm going to go on vacation. And I will be back the week of January 4th. We're going to be kicking off the new year with our RPGs that we're really looking forward to in 2016. Uh, there are a lot of great games coming up. I'm really excited. And you should be excited, too. And we're going to keep going with this podcast. Thanks to everybody who listened in our first full year of Acts of the Blood God. You are the people who make this show possible. And I couldn't do it without you. So do me a favor. Subscribe. Tell your friends. Uh, leave a, a review for us on iTunes, over on Stitcher. Uh, check us out over on the website. Go over to US Gamer. And just keep on enjoying those RPGs. I mean, that's why we do this. Because we all love role-playing games. But until then, happy holidays from Acts of the Blood God. Thanks to Bob and Mike and Nadia and Jeremy and John Learned and Rowan Kaiser and Jason Wilson and Steve Tramer and all of the other people that we've had on the show this year. Love you all. Happy holidays. And of course, happy adventuring. Let's go.